From the Journeys of Belonging to Blackness Digital Media Project, I'm India Lorik Wilmot, and you're listening to the podcast, Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness. Joining us today is Alicia Annabel Santos, also known as La Santera. Alicia is an Afro-Latina author, playwright, writing coach, a fellow podcaster, teaching artist and activist, as well as a film director and producer. She is the founder of the New York City Latina Writers Group and a National Book Award faculty member. For over a decade, Alicia has created and nurtured safe spaces for emerging and established writers to nurture their creativity. Whether she's a frequent guest speaker and workshop facilitator for universities and nonprofits across the U.S., or a guest on shows like NPR's Tell Me More, Alicia's work focuses on topics that intersect identity, religion, sexuality, feminism, and social justice for people of color and particularly women of color. In addition to her 2011 memoir, Finding Your Force, A Journey to Love, and her play production and one-woman show entitled I Was Born, Alicia's work has been published in magazines such as Latina Magazine, Glamour, Domino, and Business Week, and most notably her essay, Two Cultures Marching to One Drum, appeared in Urban Latino Magazine. In addition, Alicia Rowan produced the documentary entitled Afro-Latinos, an Untaught History with director Renzo Davia, which is a film that intends to build awareness and help give voice to a large community of African descendants in the Caribbean and Latin America who've been silenced and historically marginalized. More recently, Alicia has launched a new business venture that allows her to blend her spiritual practice with her writing and community empowerment work called La Santera Spiritual Consulting. And I can't wait to learn more about that. But right now, let's welcome La Santera, Alicia. Yay. <laughs> Thank you so much for inviting me on your show. I'm so humbled to be here. I'm so proud of the work that you're doing in elevating and celebrating our voices and our testimony. And so, yes, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time out of your extremely, extremely busy schedule to share a bit about your work with our listeners. You know, what's so funny is that I'm always intrigued by our guests who are also engaged in projects designed to educate and uplift African descended communities. And so you seem to do it all. And so I appreciate your kudos to me too, but ciao. I think your intro is probably one of the longest intros I've given to date. <laughs> I'm like, what is she not doing? <laughs> Sleeping. I, I guess. But I, I, in all honesty, your energy that's infused throughout the work, whether it's through pen or, you know, really keyboard, but at this point, but through pen, on the screen, in your performance art is quite powerful. And you connect very well with people. And I'm, I know I'm not alone when I say this, but your messages resonate deeply. And I think it's because you are an effective storyteller mm -hmm. and the care you take and the time you make when helping others feel empowered to tell their stories. I mean, it makes sense that you are considered by many in the community, a writing midwife. I just think about the moment that I realized that I was a writer, like all of this, when we come, when it comes to like, how did, how do I come to as a Dominican, as an Afro-Latina, to the fullness of myself as a black woman? How did I get there? Where did it come from? The journey, it's been a journey of identity, mm. self-discovery, 
and self-awareness. And so I'm a person who grew up in Brooklyn in the 70s, right? And so there was no Latino. Like I start off with that. Like when you come in, come up in a space where you're not even sure where you fit, Mm. You were either black or you were white. There was no Latino. We were not even on the census at that point. And so I wasn't light enough to be white and I wasn't dark enough to be black. And so I immediately come up in elementary school, not having a home, not having a place, but I knew I was more black than white. I've always known that. Whatever that word minority meant then, I was a part of that group. I was, uh, I was definitely not in the in group. I was always in this like space of let me be here because this is where I feel most safe and most seen and then you go through your you know your high school years and I went to to predominantly white school and I grew up in a home where you're taught you marry white because you you know marrying white is right and it's about aclarando la raza Mm -hmm. so now you're being told you're being taught and programmed and conditioned to believe that okay you don't want to identify as black because white is where it's at and here is where you will excel and succeed and and not be invisibilized right so you immediately i immediately have this conflict this inner conflict of well then who am i where do i belong where's my place there was a long time when i was even latina when i wasn't even wanting to speak spanish you know and it's like i feel like i've had decades of transformation and it wouldn't be until i came out as a writer in 2001 right so after september 11th that i begin to delve deeply into what my identities are what are the things that i'm connecting to what are the things that make me me what do i get to claim and when i came out as a writer and i knew that the first magazine i wanted to write for and publish in was essence i knew that that was the place for my voice because it's where i felt i most related it wasn't even latina magazine and there was an african-american sister who said to me how dare you want to write for essence magazine you ain't black right for latina it's not your place and the words it's not your place were the things that were ringing in my head like shit it's not my it's not my place so what is my place and what does that even mean that i begin to look at but wait my mother's black right my mother's caribbean i am black and not only so not only am i latina i'm black and not only is it my place but it's my responsibility to really look at what that means and why it is that we were having this these conflicts so that story that you um the title two cultures marching to one drum Mm -hmm. was originally titled real the will the real black girl please stand up (laughs) i pitched it to essence and essence rejected it they they weren't with it I'm stating like the title. And what I was trying to do is bridge this black brown divide so that we could really have a conversation about race. And but but mostly what we had in common as black people. So when it got published, it really was affirming because it allowed me to really continue to do this work. Because from that article is where I landed Afro-Latinos, the untold story, as their head writer and producer. And I'm interviewing Black Latinos all over Latin America, 18 countries later. And this question about why aren't we talking about being Black? Why aren't we identifying as being Black? And what what does this look like in Latin America? Which is a completely different experience to the United States and our African-American history here. Yeah, because the racial project looks very different 
in the Caribbean and across Latin America, right? and just the articulation of, of the racial projects. And when I think about you and, and when I'm talking to folks like yourself who, who are really very unapologetically Black, because I met, I met you and I've known you for a while, but I've known you as this person who's like, I'm, I'm Black. And that this weird juxtaposition that you felt yourself sort of traversing earlier on in life, there's a lot more clarity when I meet you in the present. And so for me, it's just like, I then wonder, all right, well, how do, did a person like Alicia get here, right? And what was her journey like? Because as you were saying, this is a process, you know, that moment when you're like embracing your identity as a writer, but then embracing yourself as Afro-Latinx, as a Black person, as an African descendant. There are so many people out in podcast land listening in who are creatives like yourself and who are who want to be able to tell their story and their journey that might be similar to yours. And I'm like, you know what? This woman is powerful. And so here's a platform to share a story. So no, when I think about that question, what brought me here, what brought me to my blackness, to owning my blackness unapologetically, the first thing that came to my, my like lips was religion, spirituality, mm. God. So when you're on this journey and you're having like these nervous breakdowns and life is just fucked up and you realize that, you know, you don't fit in this world. You're not white. You don't fit in this world. People don't see you as black because you're too light. You've got to begin to take your identity and own it, but also prove it in some ways. Mm. People want to see that I own my privilege also as a black woman. They want to see that I recognize that I've had some access to things that I might not have gotten if I was three shades darker mm. or if my hair texture was a little bit different. And I do remember early on before I wore my hair natural, natural, curly, when I used to straighten it out weekly, that people would respect me more mm. when I walked into spaces. So when you say I stand in my blackness unapologetically, it, has, it took a long time because I had to dismantle a lot of misconceptions about process and my journey in particular. I come to my blackness through religion and spirituality and my connection to my ancestors and my roots and really honoring and recognizing where I come from. That's where, that's where my blackness is born. The roots of me, the history. You know, when I think about my mother's father, my mother's mother, my mother's siblings, and this line, this lineage of African descendants that I come from, how do I pay homage? How do I connect to them? So this is where the journey begins for me truly to understand and own it is I am, I am entitled, I am entitled to this, mm. to this religious practice that is Santeria, that is Division 21, that is Voodoo right? Because I'm Dominican, I share an island with Haiti. And so it makes sense that all of these things are coursing through my body. I just wasn't taught how to access it, mm. right? And so with age, I, I become someone who questions more and I investigate more and I love. And it's funny, when I went to visit my mother this summer, and we were preparing all of my first Las Santeras spiritual baths. The first batch had her hands and her touch all over it. And I'm, and I'm doing tarot card readings and consultas the entire month I'm there with her. Like, I'm like, mom, I'll be right back. I have three readings back to back. I'll be right back. She looked at me at one point and said, I cannot believe that you do these things because my grandmother used to do 
consultas, consulting, and readings for folks who would come in the neighborhood in DR, which for me was, this is, this is my roots. This is, mm. of course I am who I am because of this. And then I look at where I am today. I'm in Ialocha, Omo Ogun, Enoya. And that in itself has been, we get to talk about that for hours. Is that beautiful? <laughs> Listen. What you said is just a nice way for us to transition into our first segment. Act one, call to adventure. I think about your memoir, Finding your force and the ways you talked about your journey towards self-love and healing. And, and I think too about the work you do today, that's all about using your force and the ways you draw on your inner strength um, and how you use your voice. And that must have a great influence in the work that you do today. So please tell our listeners, how did you become interested in doing the work you do today? Then what motivated you or inspired you to become this writing midwife? So See, these are some Oprah questions, right? That's some Oprah, big Oprah questions right now. Listen, when you when you grow up as a, as a as a baby of color, right? You're you're young, and you're in the fourth grade, and you're nine years old, and you have this white teacher. Your first experience with um, with knowing that you're different. And, and knowing that you don't belong and your teacher is the one who makes fun of you. And, and I, um, I grew up in the 70s, so I remember that I was wearing in the fourth grade bell bottoms, right? And a lot of times I was wearing clothes that were hand-me-downs from people, from other folks. They weren't even like things that my parents could afford to buy because they had just come to the country in 1968 and 1969. So this laughs at me in front of the class. Ha, ha everyone's laughing at me. That's all I remember is everyone pointing and laughing at the clothes I was wearing because I was poor. And I stood at the door of the room and I'm like, you think that's funny? You think that's funny? This is funny. And I gave her and the entire class the middle finger. <laughs> you flipped and them the birds. <laughs> I went, I ran to the bathroom and I was crying in hysterics and I knew I was going to get hit. I knew I was going to get beat when I got home for that, mm. for that incident. But I didn't care because what I knew was that I had things to be ashamed of. Mm. And when you carry that into your adulthood and you're working for white bosses and you're working in corporate America, because I've had incredible positions. I've worked for some of the top magazines and publishing. I've worked for some of the top, um, liquor companies in the country and the world like i've had i've worked for corporations like big names and so when you work for these places and they're beating you down and these white people are beating you down you understand that it's because you're black and they believe they can and you get to a place where you decide am Am I this desperate to stay because I have to feed my daughter? I was a single mom at the time. Or do I leave? Do I love myself enough to say, F it. I'm done with this. I'm done with being treated badly by these people who do not value me, who do not see me, who do not respect me. And a lot of that was born when I came out as a writer in 2001. So here I am, and I'm just coming to who I am. 
I'm coming into myself. I'm coming into my power and I'm deciding I'm going to, I'm going to take care of me. I work for my last corporation. I work for my last editor. It's 2005. I left Florida in 2000, after 2001, after September 11. That's when I knew I was a writer. I worked in publishing. And then fast forward, I'm working for this editor-in-chief, 2004. I have a nervous breakdown. Mm. I can't. I can't take it anymore. I can't, I can't get beat up anymore. And this is not why I came to New York. I came to New York to pursue writing. And so the moment that I took on I took that identity, I'm a writer. I was standing in the fullness of myself as a black woman. I said, you know what? I'm going to work for myself for the rest of my life. I'm never going to allow myself to be in another position like that. And the rest is history, truly, because 2005, I left that job. And I wasn't working for a little while. And then 2006, I write the article. 2008, I begin the journey for Afro-Latinos. I'm gone. I'm traveling all over Latin America, 15 countries. That's where I'm really delving into the religion, where I'm learning, where I'm studying. And all that time, I'm making a decision about whether or not I am going to become initiated or part in this religious practice because... There was a lot of fear. There was a lot of, am I worthy of this? Mm. There was a lot of having to build myself back up in this journey. To, and it makes sense. When I think about being a Black woman and I think about our history, being American also, right? Which right. I don't say very often, but I was born here. There were things that I had to just deconstruct to build myself back up. And so during the film, I meet women from all Latin America who in the first five minutes of meeting me want to tell me their life story. There is something about the exchange that makes them feel safe. So like even scholars, historians, sociologists, professors, like I would sit with them and they wanted to tell me their testimony about their abuse. Wow. Whether it's sexual, whether it was physical, whether it's, you know, power struggles at work, whether it's being invisibilized as a black, like it was from one, like Peru, Uruguay, Cuba, DR, Puerto Rico, Argentina, you name the country as I'm traveling the world. And it's a lot of the same thing. And people are telling me they're, they're bringing it all to me to hold and help them give voice to. So you're asking like how my podcasts, right? So I come back with all of that on my shoulders, mm. all of these women with me. How do I honor Black women, Afro-Latinos, the untold story, making sure that I'm doing justice to this 150 million people of African descent in Latin America? How do I tell their story? How do I tell their story? How do I honor that truth, even though I'm not living their experience? Because mm. there's that. I write a one-woman show. So I write the documentary, I write a one-woman show, I Was Born, where it's monologues of seven different women that I met and their experiences. Mm-hmm. And it was part of the, the one festival, right? Yes, mm-hmm. it was part of the one festival in New York, which is, was an amazing experience. And it was performed, the one-woman show was performed by, on seven nights by seven different women who had wow. memorized the entire script because I wanted it to be different voices, different women, different experiences telling these stories and it was amazing all while facing eviction all while facing not working because remember i quit my job 
to say I'm working for myself. And so a lot of like owning who I am has been, has been, how do I do this on my terms? How do I do this on my terms and hold on to some self-respect when people want to continue to beat things out of me? Mm. I write Finding Your Force, 2011. I wrote my memoir in a month. I had taken a month off from connecting to anyone, anything to write this over, like my partner, Joseli says, she says it's a, a thousand page memoir. I'm like, no, it's not. It's close to five. <laughs> um, so I wrote it in a month. That's amazing. It, it was crazy. At this rate, I, I should have you as my ghostwriter because I'm like, yo, I'm trying to produce something that's like 200 pages and it's taking like seven years. <laughs> that was on um, beast mode, but also me needing to purge all of this out. So mm. I write the memoir. I write it in a month. I publish it that same year at some point. So like I finished it. I wrote it in May. I published it in August. Wow. In August of that year. I self-published my mm-hmm. memoir and so after you write something that major that's your entire life story your journey coming out as a lesbian your failed marriage you're being a single parent all the ways you damage her you're being raped and violated mm. you're like your whole journey of your whole journey of of life like this 20 year span this memoir spans 20 years of my life what's next People wow. always ask me, you so still have you found your force? I'm like, I'm always finding it in different ways. It's never ending. You never completely find it. I recorded Finding Your Force as an audiobook. Mm. It's available for free on my SoundCloud. And from there, I decided that I needed to record these podcasts, these video blogs of just things that like with different topics and things that I'd be, that I would be going through and experiencing as a writer, as a woman of color, as a black woman, as a lesbian, as a mom, whatever came up that day, that was the theme of the day. And I would just freestyle. I would just freestyle and just go. And until I really got my niche, right? Because I was then talking about the craft of writing and I was doing meditations. And then I've come to a completely different place as a healer, as a curandera, as a miyalocha. And I'm doing under the La Santera umbrella, right? La Santera spiritual consulting. I'm providing daily card readings. I'm using my social media to connect to people mostly our people, right? Women Mm -hmm. of color, black women and men who are really trying to connect spiritually and connect to the God that lives in them. So that's the truth of like where my work has taken me. I, I, I know that I went through all of this in my journey to this place where I get to share how I got there and what I know now. So I'm going to peel it back a bit for our audience because I think it's important to really look to that pivotal moment where it's just like, I'm going to really embrace and take on this identity of being a writer. Because I think in many ways, the choice that you made after September 11th to say, you know what, I need a shift in my life. And it's more than just, oh, I'm going to take up writing and this is a hobby. Because I think for creatives, it doesn't necessarily matter so much the platform per se, but it's there's something that's in their being. 
but what you did requires a set of courageous steps to take, right? To actually make a professional shift from I'm getting money, I'm doing well in this corporate environment, and then to pivot to something that honestly, to be a creative, there is financial instability in that. And oftentimes, I'm sure there may be some of us, some of our listeners out there listening in and thinking like, I want to be a writer. And they're kind of pussyfooting around it because it's just like to make that leap. What you did is huge. And so take us back. Like, what was some of the contextual things that was happening that was like, you know what? I need, I need a, I need a change. And this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to do this full time. And this is definitely a part of my journey that I'm going to put forth because that's very intentional on your your part. And I'm sure it's more than just being an African descendant in these workspaces, because a lot of us work with, you know, those others (laughs) and we feel marginalized, but we are still beholden to that environment, but then still try to find creative patches elsewhere. But you were just like, screw it. I I love this something speaking through you right now. (laughs) Am Oprah 2.0. That is probably, I may have said it quickly um, in the interest of time, but truly one of the hardest decisions I've ever had to make. Right. Mm. So I like to tell stories and use dates. So September 11, 2001, that Tuesday, we know that the towers come down. When the towers come down, I'm living in Miami and I'm working for a major rum company, a major rum company. And so I'm driving to the office that day and I'm on the phone with my sister, Josie, and she's, she does her good morning America thing. She's telling, she's catching me up on the news. She's watching the news in real time. I'm driving to Miami. And she's like, oh, shit, a tower just cra- uh, um, a plane just crashed into a t- the tower. And I was like, what? And I'm driving, 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 driving. And I'm still driving to work to Miami. And she tells me a second plane lands in the tower, in the Twin Towers. And I'm like, shit, we're under attack. That's what I felt instinctively. I was like, oh, we're mm. under attack. I get to the office and I remember saying to my boss, if one more thing happens, I'm out. I want to go pick up my daughter. I want to go be with my family. After September 11th and all of the days that follow, we are watching September 11th on replay, all of us around the world, just on a loop. Right. The towers, the people jumping out of windows, all of that, that horrific moment, right? And I'm thinking, damn, what if I had died in one of those towers? What if I had died? What How will my daughter remember me? What significant contributions have I made in life, what would I leave her with? How will, she, how will she remember me? And I decided that I was gonna write her a memoir. I did not know how to write a memoir. I didn't know how to begin to even tell a story at that point. I had no inkling internally that I was a writer. Like I didn't know it. I didn't wake up to it yet. Hmm. But I knew I was gonna write her a memoir because I said, if anyone's gonna tell my daughter my dirt about my life, it's gonna be me. And so I began to look around my bookshelf and I had all of these books on writing, how to write, how to publish, how to get it, <laughs> how to get an editor. So I had been collecting these books. Do you remember those little papers that you would buy a book for a penny? Yeah, like absolutely. So I had, I had been picking all these titles. It was preparing me, but I had no idea. 
till I said I should write her a book. And then once you, I mean, I love that Paolo Coelho quote from The Alchemist, mm. when you want something badly enough, the universe conspires in helping you achieve it. That's right. There was the national, there was the Miami book fair was happening. And it was that following month. And I'm like, and it was like, you know, if submit 30 pages and you get to sit with a, with an international editor and agent. And I was like, I'm, I could write 30 pages. Like it came out of nowhere. I was gonna, I took three <laughs> days off of work. I was just like, I'm gonna tell my story. And I was, then I was writing a, a book called Becoming Me. And I always say, um, Michelle Obama stole my title because I had that title many, many, many years ago. <laughs> so Becoming Me is okay in my skin. And I was writing about my parents' love affair and I was reading a book called Writing from Personal Experience. Mm. And as I'm reading it, the lines that really, like everyone has a story to tell, everyone's experience matters. And in that moment, I looked at my daughter who was, she was little at the time. She was like nine. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm, I'm a writer. And she's like, I know mommy, you're going to write me a book. I said, no, you don't understand. I'm a writer. She's like, I know you're going to buy me a house with a McDonald's in it and a McDonald's <laughs> and a Carvel. Like she was, she didn't get it. But in that moment, it was revealed to me that I am a writer. And once I had that revelation, I began to make moves to manifest that. And I knew that I wanted to leave Florida and come back to New York City because I felt like New York is where I needed to be to hone my skills to really master my craft and I want I, knew, I just knew that New York was where I needed to be to do that and so I began to save money and um, I saved four thousand dollars I had a job lined up um, I, I had a school picked out for my daughter she was gonna be going to a private school everything was aligning perfectly until I made a huge mistake at my job I was accused of embezzlement <gasps> huge mistake that I had made. So at the time, I was an executive assistant to a marketing manager for this major rum company. And I was in charge of doing the, of, of organizing this huge sales meeting for people internationally coming in. So all of the logistics, hotel, food, entertainment, um, all of the workshops, everything. And my boss said to me, but I want you to have fun. It was at the Four Seasons. I want you to have fun, have fun, have fun. And I'm like, absolutely. I had private yoga. I got a manicure and a pedicure. I got a massage. <laughs> Long story short, two weeks before leaving, because I had given my notice, I was moving to New York. Everyone knew I was pursuing writing. I'm called in and they were like, do you realize you spent $4,000 at the Four Seasons? And I was like, no. They made me pay it back in like 24 hours. I was escorted to my car. I was humiliated. I went home and I cried. Devast I was devastated. I was so ashamed. I had disappointed my boss. I, I couldn't believe I had done that. I, I'm, I've always been an excellent employee, right? Because we're trained that way to be right. excellent. And I'm in the bathroom with towels in my mouth crying. No one knew. My parents didn't know. I had moved in with them to save money for my move to New York. Right. And the saving of the 4000 went right back to them. And so 
the universe is funny, right? The, I will always remember this woman, the vice president of human resources at this rum company called me a few days after the incident and she wanted to check in and she wanted to know how I was. This is a woman who had taken me to see Wayne Dyer, mm. who had taken me to plays. Like these are people who like really loved me. And she was like, okay, tell me what's going on with New York. What are you, what are you doing? And I wiped my, wiped my tears came out of my hysteria, took a deep breath. And I said, I'm still going. I'm still going. I'm going to New York. I'm still going. And she was like, that's what I, that's what I like to hear. I said, always be a woman. This is another woman of color. She's like, always be a woman of your commitment. Mm. Always be a woman of your word. And I've carried that all my life. So I appreciate you knowing that that story was important to share because it hasn't been easy to choose writing. It has not come easy. It has come at great costs. It has come at great humiliation and devastation, but it has been the very thing to help ground me and choose me because at any moment I could have thrown in a towel and say, you know what, writing isn't for me. I'm not going to do this, but I have, and I still am choosing writing. I still am choosing me. I love your story. And even just this whole segment, because it's, that's the call to adventure, right? And so when I, when I was thinking about, um, just even as a sidebar, thinking about how to organize this podcast, it's like anytime we're embarking upon a particular journey, you can have a multitude of different journeys. I mean, journey for me in this context is the journey of life, but we have many journeys and trips along the way. Um, kind of goads us or triggers us to go on a particular path. And I think it's so powerful and meaningful in the sense of just like, there are all these things that are happening in your environment <laughs> around buying the books, having these conversations. But it's so interesting that there's certain clues around the, a manifestation of a dream that you're having that sometimes you're not even cognizant of that you're like, oh, so to your point where you look up and you're like, wow, I have all these books that are about these things. Your, your mind was subconsciously doing something because it was trying to express a passion or, of yours. And you didn't even realize it until you just looked up and was like, oh. And I think your story about just the misstep in the corporate environment too, where there are trappings that are like that, that we as people of color, I've, I've heard stories like that before, where you're thinking that you have a particular relationship with your manager or someone who is, you know, a little bit, has a little bit more influence in the organization. And you're thinking, oh, I have some latitude. And then it comes to bite you in the behind in a harsh way. But I think it's just really a testament to our experiences in which you are able to be resilient. You know, when I started the New York City Latina Writers Group in 2006, it came out of this um, need to have a space to tell our stories unapologetically without having to translate or explain ourselves or you know whitewash it or whatever to make people feel comfortable. It was, we can come as we are with our stories um, and we could be amongst women that get it. Mm. Like we get it. And so from that, from creating that space, right? It first started in 2006 with six women meeting in my apartment in Harlem to growing from in one month to 30 people from in six months to a hundred people. And now 13 years later, the New York City Latina Writers Group has over 800 members. Wow. And so from there, I began to 
create, you know, for the past seven years now, the right it's writing from the womb workshops where I meet with writers and it's either a nine month session where we're writing for nine months and I'm helping them to give birth to a story from like inception to finish line. I'm helping them to dream it. I'm helping them to see the, the story that they might be missing, like asking them the right questions in the most loving, nurturing, supportive space because they're not getting that in other spaces. So for me, I love I love that one of my writers is the one who called me the writer. You're the, you're the writing midwife because she's like, you know, you, you know, with writing prompts and activities and just this space that, that I've created, I'm really proud of because I've seen so many writers complete things and go on to publish things and they're actors and filmmakers and they're just taking their writing to just the next level, which is really, really dope. Mm-hmm. And I even think what you started to talk about with your work in terms of being a writer and a producer for Afro Latinos, the documentary, that's important in terms of you even coming into your fullness around embracing this, you know, your self identity as a Black person, you know, more than just saying, oh, I'm of African descent. Because I think a, a lot of folks within the Latinx community do recognize like, oh, okay, enslaved Africans came to this region along with the indigenous people that were already there and with the white colonizers. So yeah, of course, that's why we look this way or our hair has this particular curl pattern and my booty looks like this and my music and my food, but that's about it, right? That's very different to say, oh yeah, there's some African descended people somewhere in my lineage. That's different from saying, no, I am an African descended person, whether you are asserting that as being Afro hyphenated, whatever, like Afro Ecuadorian or Afro Colombian versus like I'm black, which in and of itself means different things in different contexts, right? That's a very, very clear identities that I've always found interesting being, you know, with family that's of the Caribbean. And although we may all speak different languages, across the region, it's just like, yo, there's this real tension around colorism. There's a real tension around embracing that. And that's deep for you to even come into your own with that. And then to be on the other side of the lens, hearing people's stories. So you have your own story, but then you're hearing other people tell their story to you. It's crazy to me how my journey of self-discovery and identity and this, you know, coming into myself, brought me to Afro-Latinos. Like I intentionally wrote a story that was about bridging the Black-Brown divide so that I'm thinking Black girls and Brown girls, we realize that we all Black. Right. Like we all come from this place and it was about this, like this school of thought that the first woman came from Africa. Like all of this, like this is all of the things that I was embracing, studying, learning, and and taking on as truth. Because we could know that mangu is an African word and and our booties are African, fine, but there is something very um distinct about saying I'm a black woman within Dominican culture, where many black women aren't identifying right. as black. And so I think it is interesting because they haven't arrived to a place of being proud of that blackness. That's heartbreaking. Right. So like when I think about where we, where we are as a people here in the U S and, and where there are a lot of African Americans who feel like, Oh, now you want to be black. 
Right. Now you want to be a part. Oh, now, because it's a trend, you want to identify. And where I'm talking about Afro-Latino, Afro-Latinidad. Now you, now you want to be black because it's cool. The truth of the matter is we've always been black. We just have never loved it. Love being black because we were told not to. We were told to hate the skin that we were born in, much like African-Americans yesterday who have come to not all African-Americans, but there we've had that struggle within African-American, the community. You right. know, we know what that is to want to lighten your skin and cleanse. That's not just happening here in the U.S. It, it's happening all over, you know, anywhere there, anywhere where there are black folks there is someone who is suffering an identity crisis and mm -hmm. uncertain about whether or not they should love the skin that they're in. Right. Ain't that the truth? Because wherever we are in the world, I mean, there is some sort of colonial and post-colonial history <laughs> that's there. I mean, even on the continent, you know, slavery looked very different on this side of the world, this the Western hemisphere, but still even the post-colonial practice and how these countries were divided the way they were divided, who came and colonized them, you know, plays a role in the ways in which that, to me, you're like, wow, like it's big business in places like Nigeria and Ghana and along the, the Western coast of the continent around lightnings of skin. It's, it's, it's devastating. You know, but what I what I do love is that there are more and more and more people who are standing in their blackness all over Latin America. There are a lot of movements. There are a lot of laws being passed finally, you know, um, to protect people against racism and discrimination. I mean, it, it's still common practice in, in Latin America to have in your your newspapers that they're looking for someone with buena presencia, good presence. And that reading between the lines, that means that they really want someone who's light, who's white, a white Latino with straight hair or light eyes, you know, for this job. And definitely don't be a black person, a black woman coming in here with kids because they right. definitely are asking you the most inappropriate questions on an interview. And so I feel like where I am, like, I, I love that you're asking about the film that it has been interesting to be across from the people, the, the Afro-Latinos, Afro-Colombian, Afro-Dominican, asking them about the experiences with identity and those who are like not having it, right? Because there are people who are still like, I'm not black. Right, dark as midnight. Like, oh, okay. But then they're not black. They're brown, they're mulatto. And so I know that my work here is to show people this is where we come from this is our history this is the truth and i believe that i, I think that people need to have agency over their identity mm. so i'm not here to like start this like afro latino movement like you're either embracing your blackness or you're not and if you're not i'm sad for you you because you'll never be like a full you're never going to be a whole person because there's a part of you that you're denying um, and ashamed of because you haven't been taught the truth. 
of of who you are and where you come from and so we like do our like civil rights movement and our black power movement and our black is beautiful movement like you see it you see it more and more like there's a woman her she um owns miss risos uh her name is caroline contreras but she has this movement where she started a salon and a school so you know black girls in dr could begin to embrace their hair and know how to take care of their hair and and so it's really empowering that I've learned about myself and um, incredible work that I'm, I'm seeing happening. There you have it, folks. This concludes part one of our conversation with Alicia Annabel Santos, La Centera. Stay tuned for the next episode, part two, as she talks about the road and where we land. Peace.